This week I was looking at a, a lot of different studies and statistics while I was trying to get, get prepared for this, and I discovered as I was looking the uncomfortable truth that if religious trends continue in this country, that by the time my children are my age, most Americans will be atheists. And even though the current amount of atheists in America is a minority of between 10 to 20 percent, depending on what study you look at, it cannot be denied that it is growing quickly. And this is, this is of particular concern because the most prevalent atheist leaders and authors have horrible things to say about Christianity and the God of the Bible. Men like um, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris are constantly invited to college campuses uh, where they mock Christianity and they compare those who believe in God to people who refuse to use their brains. And as you know, this type of thinking and teaching is it's absolutely eaten up on the college campuses. Universities are places unfortunately, where it is almost impossible to be able to voice traditional Christian beliefs without being mocked or shouted down. We live in a culture that is truly being trained to hate Christianity. And it's really interesting also that it seems to be just Christianity. The logical implications, when you think about it, of the atheistic world system should also rule out every other religion. Yet, about a year ago, when the University of Berkeley found out that Richard Dawkins had called Islam evil back in 2013, they disinvited him because, quote, they could not partner with anyone who uses hateful language against a community under attack. So there's this hatred for Christian beliefs and Christian morality, and it's flourishing everywhere on the college campuses, and it's being reinforced by literally almost every movie or TV show that comes out. Sometimes it's, it's very subtle, and sometimes it's quite uh, overt, but it's fairly obvious that there's this intention to normalize all kinds of anti-biblical beliefs and morality. They're, they're not merely presenting an alternative to biblical morality, but they're, they're actually vilifying it. And you see that effect of this indoctrination from Hollywood and the educational system everywhere now. And in, in the judicial system, we see Christian business people taking a stand for their beliefs and then being sued for hate speech. And in the political arena, we see the Christian worldview dismissed as being on the wrong side of history. And one of the easiest paths, in fact, in, in politics to victory is to, paint there, is to paint your opponent as one who believes in traditional marriage or thinks that there's something inherently wrong with transgenderism or, or who would even dare to use the word sin. But you all know this. You, you felt it. I'm, yeah, I'm sure you're not surprised because every time you, you take a casual glance at Facebook or Twitter or even just look at the comments section on, on most stories in CNN or Fox News, you'll, it, it shows this battle between the, the Christian worldview and what can only be described as an anti-Christian worldview. It's a battle that we've felt coming for a while. Most of us have felt it all our lives. If, if, as a kid, I have that feeling that it's stronger and stronger. Growing up in a Christian home, I've seen this assault coming, getting more powerful. 
So that actually, if, I mean, if you, when you think about it, every five years you can look back and say, wow, who would have thought we would be here five years ago? You can say that every five years. Or maybe even year now. This is something we're on guard against now, right? We're, we're kind of on guard against it. We're ready. When we turn on our computers, we have, we have facts, we have stats, we have, we have memes to wage this war. And we expect it now. We, whenever we head to school or, turn, or go to work or turn on the computer or go to maybe large family gatherings, we know what's coming. When we think of this battle, we get this mental picture, don't we, right? Of, of Christian soldiers wearing you know, the armor of God and, and locking arms with each other and facing down this, this godless culture that hates us so much. And when you hear terms like the war on Christianity, isn't, isn't this exactly the type of stuff that you think of? That's the battle. That's the battle that we feel. The, the problem with this picture, this picture which is so easy for us to embrace, is that it pits us against an enemy that is actually no real threat to the church. We are warned repeatedly in Scripture about a dangerous threat to the church. But as loud and as noisy and as distracting as this culture war gets, we fail to consider the words of the Bible. The, the Bible that we are so eager to defend. We fail, we fail it when all of our zeal for the truth of God's Word is pointed out there while the real threat the real threat to the truth dresses a lot like us and walks confidently among us. This is the threat that we are told to contend with. This is the one that can do serious damage to the church. This is the threat that we are warned about on multiple occasions by every single New Testament author. Every single one. This is the threat that is so serious that Jude feels compelled to write these words, which we will now read together. Starting in verse 1, all the way through. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment 
of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. False teaching, or apostasy as we sometimes call it, is the real threat. Not danger from outside, but danger from within. It is so easy to get distracted and go to war with, with the people who are clear in their opposition towards us and to forget what the Bible calls us to be on the lookout for. We need to remember that trials and persecution from the outside have never been a threat to the church. Never. This is not something to fear. It's like what we sung about in the song. It's why we don't fear trials. Persecution from the outside of the church has always strengthened and refined the church. Political liberals, Hollywood liberals, atheists, socialists, humanists, feminists, evolutionists, Islamic terrorists, they can do their worst. And they, they may destroy America. 
But their opposition to the church will only and always make the church stronger. What we must be on the alert for, what we must contend against, are those who at first glance appear to be on our side, but are slowly and quietly pulling at the doctrinal strings of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Almost unnoticeably, unwinding the cords of truth, inserting doubt and lies and immorality, creating frayed and and weak local churches. Churches that are so confused and unsure of what is true that they're completely incapable of discipling one another or evangelizing the lost. When you begin to talk about false teaching and apostasy today, there is a certain segment, however, of of Christianity that just kind of rolls their eyes and wonders why we have to be so negative or divisive. As soon as some of the names of, of prominent false teachers start getting thrown around, Many are quick to point out that this is, this is just a matter of taste. And just because you might not like someone's preaching doesn't mean that God can't use it. And while definitely there is a, a hateful way to go after false teaching and, and acknowledging that God can and does use whatever He wants for His kingdom purposes, we cannot say We cannot say with any real integrity that we are true followers of Christ who believe that this is the Word of God if we don't stand against false teaching and actually if we don't do it frequently. As I mentioned earlier, every New Testament writer, every single one, no matter who the author of Hebrews is, because it's in Hebrews too, warns us against false teaching. False teaching being those who appear to be Christians. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Every New Testament author warns us of it. Those who refuse then to address it are simply not being faithful to Scripture. In Matthew 7.15, which we just read, Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. That indicates that He expects them to look like sheep. In 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul says that the the evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So if Jesus and Paul are right, which they are, then looking around and not seeing false teachers is not a sign that it's not actually that big a deal. It's a sign that they look like sheep. And that they're becoming more deceptive, just like we were told they would. And this is the point we're going to see from the first seven verses of Jude this morning. Why it is so important that we understand the reality of the clear and present danger of false teaching in the church. In these first seven verses, we are going to see six reasons Six reasons why we must take the threat of false teaching seriously. Six reasons why we must take the threat of false teaching seriously. And they're in your bulletin. And and just like always, I'll go longer on the first ones than the last ones. 
So the, number one, if you look in your bulletins, we're compelled by love. The first reason that we need to take false teaching seriously is that love compels us to do so. You, can, you see that right in the first couple of verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It is so easy in those first couple of verses to see the love and humility with which Jude is bringing this issue to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who choose to make stands against false teaching or false teachers today and call them out are usually seen as judgmental or hateful or arrogant. And again, I've been on YouTube and I know that that can be true in a lot of situations. But just because it is sometimes handled poorly does not mean that the solution is to just pretend that the authors of the New Testament aren't as concerned about false teaching as they clearly are. Look at what Jude does here. We can see his attitude of humble love from the very first line, from the first word. He identifies himself only as Jude. It's actually Judas. Uh, the English translators change it to Jude in our translations to, to distance him from Judas Iscariot. Uh, but, but who was this Judas who authored this letter? Um, there's, there's a few possible options, but we don't have time to go into all of them. But without going into much detail, I can tell you that we know it was Judas who was the brother of Jesus. It's James, who is also the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and, the, and, and he's the only James prominent enough to be identified as Jude identifies him as, as just James. Therefore, this is Judas, the brother of James, who is the brother of Jesus Christ. But he does not identify himself as the brother of the Lord, but as the servant of Jesus Christ, just like James does in his epistle. This just further points to the type of concern he had for these people. He's clearly not self-seeking. He's not looking to draw attention to himself. Jude uses next, in, in these next parts, he, we see that he uses the literary technique of, of triplets at the, at the uh, end of verse 1, and in verse 2 actually, at the end of verse 1, to demonstrate his love for the recipients of this letter. So a triplet is essentially just... It's just a grouping of like three words or phrases or sentences that, that's put there for an aesthetic or an emotional uh, literary effect. And, and Jude actually uses this all the time. If you, if you read through the book of Jude, you'll find so many little groupings of threes. And we see that immediately here in Jude's description of these people that he is writing to, we see how much he loves them and, and cares for them. He reminds them that they are the called. So the, the ESV is, is a little confusing here. Um, there is a definite article attached. So, so that word translated as called, it's supposed to indicate the called, as in, as in a, a description of them. So, so it's more helpful the way the NAS renders it as the called. This, this helps us to see the, the triplet better as Jude mentions three separate descriptions of those he is writing to. He says they are the called, referring to their effectual calling. They are beloved by God the Father. And they are kept for Jesus Christ. And he's about to spend 
If you remember from what we just read, he's about to spend the rest of the letter warning them about the immense danger they are in and how they have let their guard down and allowed evil, corrupting influences to infiltrate their churches. That's what he's about to do. With that in mind, then, with that in mind, it is hard to imagine a more loving thing that he could say to them at the outset of this letter and to remind them of the truth of who they are. Essentially, I'm about to tell you something really bad, is what he's saying. But, but the mindset that you need to have as you hear this is to remember your identity in Christ. You have been called out by God. He has drawn you to Himself. And He has set His love upon you. God the Father has saved you at cost, at the cost of His own Son. And you are being kept for Jesus Christ. He has purchased you. You are His there's, there's nothing better that you could be reminded of about yourself before you hear about the dangers of false teaching all around you. These are the words that we see, that's the type of words we see from loving parents, right? When, they're, when their child's about to tell them something that they're ashamed of and you're trying to draw it out of them, you say, look, no matter what happens, no matter what you did, you are my child and I love you. Judah's acting this way. Judah's reminding them of the relationship to God and his love for them in, in the most loving way he could. And we see further demonstration of Jude's love in the next triplet he uses in verse 2. He says, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He asks for mercy and peace and love. This is a fascinating triad of benefits that he's praying for them once again demonstrating his care for them. It would be great to have more time to go into each of these, but for now, I just want to point out, just notice that the, the three things that he wants multiplied upon them are three of the exact things that those who confront false teaching in our culture are routinely told that they lack. If, you have, if you've ever been in the position where you've had to confront false teaching and there's a good chance that you have been told that you were being unmerciful or that you were being harsh and judgmental. But similarly, even though it is really the false teachers who are divisive, and we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, it is generally those who recognize false teaching and speak out against it who are accused of stirring up the pot and not caring about preserving peace. You know, everyone was getting along just fine until you showed up and started talking about theology. And, and of course, love. Love. We live in a society, and, and even predominantly our Christian culture, that just cannot see, cannot see any way for a person to love someone if they're telling them that something they are doing or believing is wrong. So what we need to see right here is that not only does Jude not see confronting false teaching as being out of step with love, mercy, and the pursuit of peace, but he sees them as essential to it. It is the merciful thing to do to point out false teaching to those who are steeped in it. It is the loving thing to do to believe that it is as harmful as Jesus and Paul and James and John and Peter and Jude say it is and to warn people about it. And to understand that making peace with false teaching is like trying to make 
light and darkness live in harmony together, that there can be no peace with apostasy. We can also point out how he just begins verse 3 by just calling them beloved, demonstrating his pastoral care and concern for them. He truly loves them. And that is, what, that is what is driving him to warn them about the dangerous false teachers among them. Love. This, this needs to be the case for us as well. If we really love God and our fellow Christians, then we cannot be silent about false teaching. If we really see each other as those who have been called out by God, we're loved by Him, have been kept for Jesus Christ, then how can we say we really love God if we are not actively trying to remove poison from the presence of those whom He has done this for? And if we really claim to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will try and remove that which stands in the way of true mercy and peace and love being multiplied to them. Right, A doctor who discovers cancer in a patient and decides not to tell the patient because it would cause the patient sadness and discomfort, is not a good or loving doctor. And a Christian that sees false teaching doesn't do anything about it because they don't want to cause sadness or discomfort is not being a good or loving brother or sister in Christ. Love compels us to speak up, just as it did Jude. Second reason, second reason, why we must take the threat of false teaching seriously is that it is critically important. It is a critically important issue. And we already, and we've already begun to touch on this in the last point, but I want you to notice what Jude does here in verse 3. Look, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's initial desire, this is a unique opening to a letter in the, in, in the epistles. Jude's initial desire was to write a letter about our common salvation, to write a letter that would glory in some of the essential truths of our faith. And, and you know what? We know that that would have been an amazing letter just based on verses 24 and 25, which is the only place in the letter where he just, just takes some time and exalts in gospel truths. Jude 24 and 25 are some of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament when it comes to richly packing in doctrinal truths into into just a couple verses. Jude is saying here, notice what happened. He's saying here that he was eager to spend a, a whole letter writing these types of things down and sending it to him. This is what he wanted to write about. But because of the false teaching, he felt like he could not write that letter. And he was forced to write a different kind of letter. And notice how different this is. This, this mindset is from the, from the mindset that we hear all the time of, you know, let's just focus on the stuff we have in common. And that's what predominates, even the Christian culture in America. But let's just think about how ridiculous that sentiment is when it comes to false teaching. Something in common is the whole idea behind false teaching. That's what makes it so dangerous. Because it has a lot in common with the truth. 
The whole reason that false teaching is so attractive to so many Christians isn't because it looks like Hinduism. It's because it looks like Christianity. Unless you really look at it closely. And false teachers don't call themselves false teachers. They call themselves Christians. Looking at false teachers... And then saying, let's just focus on the stuff we have in common is exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same thing as being a sheep and noticing a wolf in sheep's clothing and saying to another sheep, hey, let's just focus on the sheep's clothing part and not the wolf part so much. It's exactly the same. Where, where false teaching is present, it demands our attention. It is not okay to just say, it's some sort of secondary issue and then, and then focus on other things instead when you see it. That's not okay. Not only is that not loving like we just talked about, but it also isn't believing the Bible about how serious it is. The, the comfortable thing to do is to not address false teaching and to just focus on the things we can talk about that won't cause any friction. That's the comfortable, that's the easy thing to do. Let's be honest, most people in Jude's position would just write the letter they intended to write in the first place. It would have been a good letter. There would have been nothing wrong in the content of that letter. It's just so much easier to do something like that. Isn't knowing about our common salvation... To, to, to dive into the wonders of, of the gospel, to study it, to really think through those truths, isn't that more important than false teaching? And the, the answer to that, by the way, is yes, absolutely it is. It is that's absolutely a better thing to spend your time talking about. But what Jude is showing us here is that while it might be better and more important to focus on doctrinal truths in general, our common salvation, glorying in the gospel, it is not necessarily always the most important thing to talk about in every moment. So, if on the evening that I was going to ask my wife to marry me, if on that evening I would have gotten the ring out and, and got ready to propose and then, and then noticed uh, suddenly that the table behind her had suddenly burst into flames. I'm not just going to kind of look over her shoulder and then continue on and maybe hurry it up a bit. It, that's not what I'm going to do. It, it doesn't matter how much planning I might have done or how much planning I might have put into it. Uh, I, I'm just going to have to find another time to propose. And, and why would I do this? Is it because... Saving her from a fire is a more loving act than proposing marriage? Think about it. It's not. Right? There's, there are lots of people I would try and save from a fire. There's only one person who I would ask to marry me. It's not a more loving act in and of itself. But in that moment, the only rational thing to do is to delay the proposal and get out of the restaurant. There'll, there'll be another time to propose. In fact, if you think about it, if you think about this situation, there are only two real reasons why I wouldn't interrupt my proposal. Either I don't really love her, or I don't believe that fire is dangerous. Those are the only two reasons. Fire is 
dangerous, though. In anything important enough to unquestionably display something as important as a marriage proposal is very dangerous. And, and that's what we need to see here. If you aren't willing to confront false teaching, maybe it's because you don't understand what love actually looks like, but maybe you just simply don't really believe the Bible about how serious it is. Because anything anything that would justify putting off glorying in the richness of the gospel together must be serious. So we take false teaching seriously because the Word of God portrays it as a critically important issue to engage in. Thirdly, we're commanded to contend. We are commanded to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We take false teaching seriously because there is a command about it. Based on just our first two points, love and reason should be enough for us to engage with false teaching when we see it. But here Jude urges us to contend for the faith. Contend means to make a strenuous effort on behalf of something or someone else. That's what that word that's translated as contend means. So we need to notice a few things then about this imperative from Jude. What we are doing is not attacking false teaching so much as it is contending for the one true faith. We, we need to shift our mindset because those who speak against false teaching are, are so often demonized for attacking people, that's kind of what we default think of it as. That, that's not what's going on. And once again, I, again, I know that there are a lot of people out there who, who do. They just like fighting for the sake of fighting. And they want to find reasons to, to have division and that type of stuff. I know that's there. But we need to understand that where false teaching exists... It is an assault on the one true faith. It is an assault on the one true faith. The existence of false teaching is the initial attack. Its very existence is the initial attack. So the, the minute someone like, like Rob Bell sits down and he starts writing a book where he, he begins to postulate that, you know what, maybe the virgin birth doesn't really matter. Or, or, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe Jesus didn't, you know, d died to satisfy the wrath of God. Well, that sounds harsh. Maybe that, that, that's not it, maybe. The, the very moment that his fingers hit his keyboard and that those words appear on his screen, he is not, despite what he says, just starting a conversation. He has launched an attack on the true faith delivered once for all to the saints and the holy God who stands behind it. And Judah is saying, when that happens, contend for the faith. It's defensive. Again, the idea is making a strenuous effort on behalf of something or someone else. Even, even though Jude is going to spend most of his letter essentially looking like he's attacking these false teachers. You just heard how harsh he sounds. And, and without the proper context, 
you could read these words, and yes, he kind of sounds like a bully. But in the context of one who recognizes those who are traitors to the gospel, those who would dare purport to be followers of the truth, but use their position and use their influence to undermine it, he is actually contending for the faith. If you were walking through the park, say you're walking through a park and you saw a guy attacking a woman, and you ran over there and you started attacking him, there is a sense in which you started a fight with that man. But the greater reality, right, is that you were contending for the woman. That's what's actually going on there. And in that moment, it does not matter that you have never met the guy. And it doesn't matter that you don't know where his heart is in that moment. And it doesn't matter that 95% of the time when he's in parks, he hasn't been assaulting women. What matters is the action. What matters is what's being said. The reason you're intervening really isn't about the guy. It's about the woman. We need to change our mindset about exactly what is happening when false teaching exists. Its, its existence, its mere existence indicates an attack on God's truth has already begun. Now are we going to step in and do something about it? Notice also, notice also what he says here. That this, this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That the gospel and the true doctrine that has been delivered to the saints, the, the truth, the, the absolute truth that a, a holy God has made a way to reconcile sinful man to Himself, that we all stand condemned before the one true and living God who created us. We have rebelled against Him with our sin and we deserve death and eternal hell. But in His mercy, He sent Christ fully God, fully man, lived a life in complete obedience, never sinning once in thought or word or deed, action. And then He died on the cross and took the penalty of the wrath of God due toward all of our sins. All the wrath of God that, that we, should have justly, we should have justly been accountable, we should justly pay throughout eternity in hell. He took that upon Himself for all of those who will repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. He takes the wrath of God to, to do to us and we receive, we receive an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And that's how God views us. This message, that message and all of its implications is for us. It's for the saints. The, the saints, meaning those who have been made holy, not by any action that we have done, but through the blood of Christ. It is a message, it is a message that we could never have thought of. And, and God has to open our eyes to understand it and believe it. 
It is, it is for us in that it was given to us or delivered to us. That's where the confusion comes. It, it's not, it, it is not our faith in the sense that it originated in us or from us. It is ours in that it was delivered to us. That, that is what makes this contention for the faith so necessary. Because one of the reasons so many people are failing at contending for the faith, and therefore why false teaching is flourishing everywhere, is because we have made it a matter of our own personal belief. When we think of it as, as my faith, this is my faith, Instead of the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, it's been delivered to us, then we start to deceive ourselves into thinking that what matters when it comes to false teaching has to do with whether or not I feel personally offended by that person disagreeing with my faith. But when you understand it as something that has been delivered to you from God, that you have a responsibility for. You can't just let it be attacked. The false teaching is not whether or not, is not, it's not about whether or not you feel personally insulted, whether or not you can just rise above it. In fact, you probably shouldn't feel that personally insulted. It's not ultimately you that they're rebelling against. It is not your faith that is being insulted. So we also take false teaching seriously then because of that truth. It's been delivered to us. We take it seriously because of we've been commanded to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If it wasn't serious there would be no command here. So if we take the gospel seriously, if we really take the gospel seriously, then we'll take false teaching seriously. Next, next point, we see that it's concealed in the church. The next reason we need to take false teaching, teaching seriously is that it's concealed in the church. We see this in verse 4 where he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. We'll go into more detail about the, their character mentioned at the end of verse 4 next week. But for now, I just want to focus on that phrase, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. We need to take false teaching seriously because it is among us. It is with us. False teachers are part of the, the visible church, the church that, that we can see. This points back to the, to the beginning of the sermon where we talked about if the threat were only outside the church, it would not be as dangerous. Right? Police officers, this always amazes me, are able to go to sleep at night with the knowledge that there are a lot of criminals out there who want to harm them. They've arrested in the past or things like that. And despite knowing that there are criminals out there who hate them, they can go to bed and go to sleep at night. But if they were to discover that one of those people was in the house with their family, they would not just sleep like normal because it's inside. 
the danger's there now. And this is what we see here in Jude. Jude says these people are with you now. The danger is already there. They, they have crept in unnoticed. How, how is it possible that they've crept in unnoticed? And it's because they look so much like us. This is what's so frustrating about this whole situation and this whole conversation. The fact that there are so many of us who just don't see it, and then we think, because we don't see it, that that means they aren't there. We're looking for them. We're literally, people are looking for them to say something so overtly obvious that we'd need to hear them get up in front of their congregation and say something. Well, today we're going to, I'd like to start the sermon by saying a quick prayer to Satan. Like, we need them to say something like that. And they're like, aha, that, I know, false teacher. Thank you, Jude. That, that's, that is not what, what, what he, we're pointing out here. They are hidden among us. They pastor Christian churches. They sing Christian music. They publish Christian books that are promoted in Christian stores. We need to know that they are there. Whether, whether we can see them or not doesn't change the truth. We've been told by the Word of God that they're there. Jude's reference to the fact that they were, that they were marked out for this condemnation long ago shows us that we should be expecting them. Jesus has promised us that they would be there. We just saw that. In, in, the, in the early reading from Matthew. All of the apostles have told us that they are there and that they're going to be more deceiving as time goes on. It's in Scripture. It's in the Bible. If there, if there were a verse in the Bible that said, on October 28th, 2018, when Christians get home from their local church gatherings, there will be intruders in their homes waiting to harm them and their families. If that verse were in the Bible, the only reason that any of us, any of you, would, would, that we would go home today and then look in our house, take a, maybe a quick look, glance around our living room, maybe stop for a second and listen to see if we can hear any sounds, uh, and, and then it'll do that, and then maybe, and then just go ahead and sit on our couch and act like, and go about your normal Sunday afternoon routine. The, the only way you could do that is if you didn't actually believe the Word of God. That's the only way you could do that. But look what's actually in the Bible. In a similar way, the only way you could come to the conclusion that there isn't any dangerous false teaching around you, because just because you don't see anything or hear anything alarming to you, is if you don't take the Word of God seriously. That's the only way. It is one of the most frequently occurring warnings in all of Scripture. If a lifeguard yells at you when you're at the beach to get out of the ocean because he sees a shark, and then more lifeguards join in the chorus, they're yelling, get out of the ocean, there is a shark in the water. And there's a, a multiplicity of lifeguards yelling at you to get out of the ocean. You are not any safer just because you don't see the shark. You're not, you are not in no less danger just because you don't see it. In fact, because of the nature of false teaching, that's part of what it's supposed to do, is be hard to see. When Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he promises them that after he leaves, he promises them, after I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. The Ephesians, in this case, would have been foolish to go on from that day and not critically evaluate the teaching coming from every new pastor that rose up among them. Every single one. If they believed Paul, that's what they would do. And and if they would have been foolish not to do that, how much more would we, who not only have that warning, but many similar ones throughout the pages of the New Testament... So we take false teaching seriously, even when we can't see it, because we have been promised that it is concealed within the visible church. Fifthly, it's commonly practiced. Commonly practiced. So for this point, we just need to look at the examples that Jude uses in verses 5 through 7. And I want to remind you, although you, once, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left to their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve in his example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In the first verse, in verse 5, there's a prominent textual variant in verse 5, which leads some to some uncertainty about whether or not the word uh, that the ESV translates as, as, as Jesus is, is actually the word Jesus uh, or, or is the word Lord, kurios in, in the Greek. Um, so, but, but I think that, without getting into much detail on that, I think Lord makes more sense. But even if Jude is trying to make a point by using the word Jesus to remind us that our Lord and Master was present in the Exodus, the, the meaning of, of what he's saying here doesn't change. There, there's a lot in these verses that we can't cover right now. And um, actually, we'll, we'll If you come back tonight, we'll probably get into that. But for now, I just want us to notice a couple of general things about these examples. Uh, And most prominently in the first example, Jude reminds us how God saved his people from Egypt. He brought them out, if you remember the Exodus story, he brought them out with a mighty power, using miracles, brings them out, goes through the Red Sea, mighty power. And then he destroys many of those same people in the desert when they fail to believe. When it's revealed that they don't believe. When they were scared to enter the promised land, if you remember, because they feared man more than they feared God. God said, none of you but Joshua and Caleb are going in. The rest of you will die in the desert. In the second example, we're reminded about the fact that not even angels were safe from apostatizing, that that angels who uh, were so close to God abandoned their position and now face destruction. In the third example, we have a Gentile example of Sodom and Gomorrah, entire cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities being destroyed because of their love of sexual immorality. And for this point, I want, to, I want to think mainly about that first example. You can see it in the other ones too. 
the destruction of God's destruction of not Egypt, but those he saved from Egypt. Of all the millions of people who are saved out of Egypt, only a very small amount showed themselves to be the faithful, true Israel of God. There is no reason for us to think that false teachers and false conversions that come from these false teachers is a rare thing. Not, not from the examples we get here. These are big groups of people. Not just a few individuals here and there. Millions of Israelites destroyed by God because they don't believe. They don't really believe. Even though they've been a part of the visible people of God for years and years. In Matthew 13, remember Jesus reminds us of the reality of the wheat and the tares. There are weeds growing with the wheat. And they will continue to be there until the judgment. It is, it is common. We should expect it. And we should be on alert in the Two Ways to Live study that um, Bill and, and Lee were leading, they said on multiple occasions that false conversions are the death knell of the church. False conversions destroy a church from the inside out. False conversions come from embracing some sort of false teaching or false gospel. And what kills the church isn't, isn't the false conversions in and of themselves, but, but, it, but rather the uncritical acceptance of the false conversions from those who are supposed to be on the alert. If we are on the alert towards false teaching, it will be much easier to recognize false conversions based on the way that they talk about the gospel and salvation. The clear teaching of the Scripture is that false teaching is not, is not only dangerous, but it's common. It's present. It's prevalent. This is an enormous, cataclysmic example of many, many people being destroyed who thought they were fine. The many, many people destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah also. It would be foolish to think of false teaching as a minor problem that pops up every once in a while. It is prevalent. Lastly, the final reason from this passage that we need to take false teaching seriously is because, is because of the condemning result, because it results in eternal condemnation. Eternal condemnation. The overall point, the overall message of verses 5-7 through seven is that God punishes rebellion against Him. False teaching leads to hell. False teachers are leading people to hell. People who think they are fine, people who think they have become Christians but whose hearts have not actually been changed by God, people going to hell with smiles. This is probably the most obvious reason why we would think that we would need to take false teaching seriously because it leads people into an eternal punishment of fire. Yet, so many of us fail to live like we believe this. There, there are so many, maybe even in here, who have an understanding of false teaching and, and how common it is and how dangerous it is. And because of how well you've been taught in the truth, you can recognize it quickly and easily. It sticks out to you. You, you, you might be the ones who, who, have, who have not been surprised by a single thing that's been said in this sermon. And you're like, preach it. Amen. But if you claim 
to be the type of person who is taking false teaching seriously. And your reaction is to see false teaching and false teachers make jokes about it. Or to to look down, even worse, to look down on the deceived people who make the books by false teachers into bestsellers and make the churches led by false teachers into megachurches. If your response is to merely look down on those people, maybe even laugh a little about it with other people alike mind as you, how could they fall for that stuff? <laughs> not only, not only are you forgetting that you were saved, you were saved because you were called, not because you were wise. Not only are you forgetting that, but you are also not taking false teaching as seriously as the Word of God demands that you do. Because you're not, you're not acting like it leads to eternal fire, like Jude says it does. If you worked in a bank and an elderly widow came in and wanted to to wire all of her savings to some foreign account in India because she received an email from a member of the royal family there who who needed the money to get back into their country, but don't worry, once once I get into the country, I'll I'll pay you back ten times as much. She came into your bank and wanted to do that. Would it be appropriate, an appropriate reaction to be thankful that you're not the type of person who would be gullible enough to fall for something as stupid as that. Maybe go to your fellow bank employees and you've you've all seen so many scams through the years and you can recognize it. Just kind of laugh about how silly and stupid it is. Of course that wouldn't be okay. The appropriate reaction to plead with this lady not to do this. This lady who's maybe been raised to believe that people are naturally good intentioned and our default position should be trust. The appropriate reaction is to warn her. Even if it bothers her that she's not going to get rich now. How much more than inappropriate is that type of reaction when the stakes are so much greater. If you believe you have a good handle on false teaching, and you can easily recognize it, and maybe you do so frequently, if your reaction is one of pride, glad I'm not like that guy who doesn't really know his Bible. Doesn't he ever read his Bible? So caught up with this type of stuff. That's your reaction. And despite what you may think, you also are not taking what the Bible says about false teaching seriously. We do not watch people walk into eternal fire with joy because we're not in the same position. So, beloved, the biblical reality is that false teaching is a real threat one that we must take seriously. It is dangerous. It is everywhere. And it is hidden in the visible church. 
And for us not to take it seriously is to not believe God. To not take it seriously is to be unloving to those in the church and unloving to those who are currently living under its deception. And to not take it seriously is to not be faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints or to the God who delivered it to us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way it exposes darkness in ourselves. The light it shines on everything that we've been thinking or become accustomed to thinking. Father, I ask that You would make us into a church that responds appropriately to false teaching, that takes it seriously, that recognizes it easily, and then responds rightly. We thank You so much, Lord, for the Gospel that saves us. That, that brings us together, that makes us a family. Help us to not be unfaithful to that or to you by failing to contend for the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.